All right, we finished chapter 8 today. We have been uh, in the book of Genesis for about eight or nine months now, and we will take a break coming up here, but we've got three more chapters to get through before we take a break. We're clipping along at a good pace. As you can tell by the scripture reading this morning, it was pretty long, um, but I think we'll be able to get through it. Most of this stuff we are old hands at now. We know a lot about what God's doing here, and we get to see the conclusion, Noah finally getting off the ark. And so we'll start with our main point so we can keep this in our minds as we go through this morning's sermon, that God's grace is the center of all he does with man. It is the center of his dealings with man. Without grace, there is no preservance of mankind. There is no preservation. There is no staying of judgment. There is only judgment. It is God's grace that intercedes into mankind's history to produce history. Without grace, there is no history and no future. So we start with Noah's dependence on God. This is yet one more great lesson that we get from Noah. We get two really good ones this morning. Noah doesn't act on his own accord. He waits for God. In Genesis 8.13, we see that it is the 601st year That means it's the beginning of his seventh century on earth. God likes to use these numbers, six for man, seven for completion, for perfection. We see the seven days in the week. Here we get the beginning of Noah's seventh century, and it is a new beginning. But God doesn't send Noah out on the very first day. Noah looks out, and he sees that the earth is dry, And he doesn't decide, well, I'm going to leave then. Everything looks dry. He does remove the covering for the ark. This means he takes off the roof. He's already starting to deconstruct this ark. He knows God's judgment is done. He is not worried about God flooding the earth again. He's not going to need this boat anymore for the same purposes. Noah begins to deconstruct the ark. But we see these two statements here, that the water was dried up from the earth and the surface of the ground was dried up. And how do we know this information? We know it because Noah looked. When he removed the roof of the ark, he looked out and he sees the earth. He sees that it's dry. Notedly, Noah doesn't act on this observation. Noah continues to wait. Unlike Eve, God had told her what to do. And instead, when she sees the fruit, when she observes something and sees that it's uh, the, uh, see, the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit, she ate, she gave to her husband with her and he ate. Man sees and man does. Unfortunately, this happens all too often. This is disobedience. It's the Lord's prerogative to evaluate the situations on the earth. And it is our prerogative to seek his evaluation of it. When we get to Genesis 6-5, we see the Lord evaluating the earth. You'll remember Genesis 1, after each one of his creation acts, he sees the earth and sees that it is good. 
Here, the Lord sees the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Man may not have had this same evaluation before the flood. Yes, we see God's evaluation in Genesis chapter 6 and Genesis chapter 8, but is this what the world back then saw? Or did they think by their human engineering, by their genetic engineering, by their murderousness, did they think that they were creating some sort of utopia? Was their murders a uh, population control that was going to keep the earth inhabitable and they're looking forward to the glory days of when the population was lower and they could survive better? Man's evaluation before the flood of man's actions before the flood probably was not so harsh as God's evaluation before the flood. And yet God deemed it bad enough to wipe out everything, to clean house, as it were. And so it's not until the second month and the 27th day of that month, 370 days total after the beginning of the flood, that we get the statement, not qualified by Noah's observation, but the simple statement of truth. The earth was dry. It didn't appear dry. It was dry. Oops. And then God speaks. It's not until the truth of what appeared was actually reality that God says, okay, I have evaluated the earth as it is, and now it is time, Noah, for you to get off the ark. And so now, finally, after one year and 10 days, Noah and his family and everything that got on the ark one year earlier get off. And this is God's first command to Noah, at least the first one that is recorded for us in Scripture since he commanded him to get on the ark. A year of silence, a year of waiting on God, waiting for God to speak again, and being prepared to act immediately when God did speak again. And just as God had said to Noah to come into the ark and to bring with him the animals, so now he says to go out of the ark. Noah gets a verbal confirmation that God was in there with him the whole time. God did not leave him at any point. God brought him in and God sends him out into the new world. And Noah's to go out together with his wife, his sons, and his sons' wives, eight people total, and he is to bring out with him every living thing that was in there with him. Now this does not uh, connotate sending them out, letting them loose. This has the idea behind it of caring for these animals, bringing them out just as they had been brought in in an ordered manner. God brought them in two by two, perhaps so Noah could see just how faithful God was to his command to bring them in two by two. Noah was able to see that not one was lost on its way in, and so he brings them out just as carefully, a record of God's faithfulness. Not one died while on the ark. 
God preserved all eight members of Noah's family, and God preserved each of these animals so that they could exit two by two as well. The only exception to that probably was the raven and the dove. They had mates waiting for them already in the new world. And we see that God also prepares for man in this new world. He has set it up so that man could survive and thrive in this new world. We'll see that the conditions of this world are not quite the utopia or the paradise we have waiting for us in the future, but it is a fresh new start. There is no corruption of man so great that God would wipe out the earth. But here we see that God has set it up so that the earth would repopulate. All of these animals exited the ark with Noah for the purpose of breeding abundantly on the earth. They were to go out to all ends of the earth to be fruitful and to multiply on it. This reflects the creation order. And remember, this is essentially a new creation. What God had originally created had become so corrupt that he had to destroy it with the creation. And now he has recreated once again out of the waters and he sends life out to fill the earth, to fill the ends of his creation. Just as in Genesis 1.22, he told the birds and the fish to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the waters in the seas and to let birds multiply on the earth. He doesn't repeat this in the creation account to the animals, probably because they were created the same day as man and theirs comes under the same commandment as man to go populate the earth. Here it is said specifically to the animals and we will see it separated in this case and given to man as well in chapter 9. And here it is not just some of all of God's creation, but a representative pair of every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth. They went out by their families. They went out prepared to populate, prepared to refill what had been emptied. Now at this point, I want to do a little excursus and talk about what they would have experienced getting off this ark. We think of a beautiful paradise of a wonderful, fruitful jungle, perhaps. The earth had just been devastated by a flood. It had just been washed clean. Everything was buried in sediments. Things were starting to sprout from this ground, but what else was new? Mountains that stretched into the sky for the first time. Oceans that were so vast they couldn't imagine crossing them. And a brand new cold climate. In fact, this began what scientists today observe as the Ice Age. It is more than interesting that the oldest books in the Bible, Job and Genesis, those which record those beginning events right off the flood, when they view God and God's workings in nature, they recognize the coldness of his breath, the ice that comes from his mouth, 
the snow that comes from heaven. It's not until after Abraham's time, even into the Exodus generation, where we start to get the corollary of God's hot winds coming from the south. We don't see that in Job. We don't see that in early Genesis. Instead, we get passages like this in Job 37. God thunders with his voice wondrously, doing great things which he cannot comprehend. For to the snow, he says, fall on the earth, and to the downpour and the rain be strong. Out of the south comes the storm, out of the north the cold. From the breath of God, ice is made, and the expanse of the waters is frozen. Now you can read all the way through Job. You don't get the corollary. From the north comes the cold, from the south comes the hot. No. The earth is cooled. This would be the natural effect of a global flood. Job 38, this is God speaking of himself in relation to man, conveying attributes of himself which man can't quite comprehend but has experiences with. So God says to Job, has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew? From those or from whose womb has come the ice and the frost of heaven who has given it birth? Water becomes hard like stone and the surface of the deep is imprisoned. This was the experience of Job, who lived probably around the time of Abraham, within 500 years after the flood. And the ice age that we observe as having taken place after the flood was on a cycle of about 500 years. This happens because we suddenly have hot oceans and cold continents. Continents rising high up into the atmosphere and cooling naturally. And waters that have just been filled with volcanic activity. We have steam, gas, ash rising into the atmosphere and refracting the sun back off into the outer space. Just a couple of years ago, 2004 or so, there was a volcano in Luzon, Philippines, about one one-thousandth the size of what would have taken place here, and it cooled the earth by 0.7 degrees for three years. We might not have experienced that because it probably is a too slight a change for us to notice. But imagine this volcanic activity that would have destroyed the whole earth and suddenly all of that gas and ash is now in the atmosphere. And it rises above the clouds so that it wouldn't just be filtered out through rain. It would have to settle out naturally. This took centuries. So here we go, we've got warm oceans sending gas and evaporated water into the atmosphere. New patterns of wind no longer having a water canopy to keep that all temperate. These winds will send this moisture over the continents where it will cool and drop as snow. And so immediately after the flood we would expect to see snowpacks, glaciers, and lower ocean levels. We get ice plates coming from the north heading into the south, much as Job there described. 
Noah would have been perhaps right on the edge of where this Ice Age border would have been. He's there south of the Caucasus Mountains. The best direction to go would be south into the Shinar Valley, and we see that that's exactly what they do. Because the thickness of these ice plates is massive. Imagine the thickness of the Antarctic plates put on top of much of the northern and southern hemispheres. Here's a picture of different skylines today. You see Toronto on the left, Montreal on the right, and the ice sheets that would have been over those locations. This is a massive amount of ice that once covered the Earth. Here's one. This is the ice that would have covered us here in Seattle. On the left, you see the Space Needle stacked up to about 3,000 feet high. You can see other various skyscrapers here. With the plates that would have covered them, there was a lot of ice at one point on this Earth. We learn about this in Pacific Northwest geography, the Scablands of Eastern Washington. The Puget Sound itself was carved out of ice. Where did this ice come from? The flood has an answer for that. The flood demands an answer for that. We would expect to see this. If you've ever been through Eastern Washington. You've seen the effects of Lake Missoula, that flooded the whole eastern portion of the con or the、uh, the state, because of the ice retreating, building up dams that would catch the water runoff and then flooding through these valleys. And even that massive flood pales in comparison to the size of God's flood, God's flood that judged the earth. That he said he would never send again. This is probably the largest flood since the flood that America has experienced, and it's right here in our backyard. And isn't that a testament to God's power, but also God's perseverance towards us? He promised he would not send another global flood. This is a drop in the bucket compared to what he sent to judge the world. The plates and the tectonic activity after the flood probably would not have stopped. In fact, it still has not stopped today. We have the Ring of Fire we're familiar with. If you were around back in 2001, you probably felt it firsthand. I was in preschool. <laughs> the land is continually changing. Terrain is now rough, and it's going to. Block off and isolate different people groups, different animal groups that find their way into various valleys. We're going to get speci speciation, diversification in the animal kingdom. As they spread out, they get separated. Within their genetic、uh, families, they start to become diversified. They start to become specific to their region and area. So where we had just a few families of animals on the ark, now we have countless types of animals all around the earth. This cycle of ice, of drastic cooling, would have taken about five years to run its complete cycle. Five hundred years, rather. That stretches beyond Abraham. That's quite a while. 
Here we've got the flood in 2348 BC. And we get the Babel event just about 100 years later. We don't realize they're that close, do we? Babel in 2242 BC, 106 years later. And so this tower should probably look a little bit more like this. It was still right at the beginning of the cooling period. Man is moving into the Shinar Valley. They are protecting themselves. They are encamping against God's judgments rather than spreading out over the whole earth. But you know, God knew what he was doing when he used a flood to judge man. Because he knew that after it would come a flood, or after it would come an ice age rather, that would allow man to spread out throughout the entire earth easily. And then as the ice retreated, they would be isolated, preserved from being corrupted by the same sins. God knew what he was doing when he told man to go and spread out throughout all of the earth, rather than all conglomerating in a single valley and becoming corrupted by the same sins. We're going to deal with this a lot as we go through the uh, Babel event. Why did God have to disperse mankind? We're going to see this as well when we look at the divine institutions. God setting up protections to keep sin from so corrupting mankind that something like the flood would be warranted. Now, something like the flood is definitely warranted, and we'll see even right off the boat, something like the flood is still warranted because the atrociousness of sin is tremendous. But God would be able to maintain a remnant, a remnant nation, a remnant people on the earth by separating them, dividing people. We would get migration throughout all the continents, and then as the ice retreats, people are left on those continents, preserved like little pockets. If one gets corrupt, there is still another people another people who can come in and conquer that people. God knows what he's doing. God knows how to protect the righteous. And so we get God's providential means of spreading and preserving mankind, the Ice Age. This is the world that Noah stepped into a world that was probably a bit colder than he was used to. This would have taken quite a while to build up ice plates that thick, but it would have been noticeably colder. Not only that, he's up on Mount Ararat, 16,000 feet. That's higher than Mount Rainier. When he first gets off the boat, he doesn't run down the mountain as fast as he can. Go find a place to hide from what God's going to send next. No, he builds an altar. He builds an altar to the Lord and he takes from every clean animal and every clean bird and he offers a burnt offering on the altar. He remembered God's promise to him that on the other side of the flood he's going to establish a covenant with him. we see here God's covenant name, Yahweh. Up until this point, Elohim has been used for God. 
Here, the purpose of this altar is to, to offer a sacrifice to the covenant God. This sacrifice would be one of thanksgiving, but also propitiation. It's an atonement sacrifice. This is only needed for a sinful people. Noah gets off the boat, and his thoughts of himself aren't, I was the best one, God preserved me, I'm awesome. No, it was one of humility. One who recognized that he needs to approach the covenant God, the God of creation, through a blood sacrifice. He understands that God is God and he is man. That God is the creator and he is the creature. He understands that nothing that God does towards him can bring him up to the level of God. While this earth remains, an atoning sacrifice is necessary between man and God. Whoops. We see that these events mark out major periods in history. In Genesis 3:20 to 21, it was not Adam and Eve who offered a sacrifice, but God who for the first time showed them the necessity of a blood sacrifice after he hands down the clauses of the curse he makes garments of skin for Adam and his wife and he clothes them a very visceral representation of the covering that is necessary to clothe the sins of man Cain misunderstands this. Cain must have missed the fact that Adam and Eve didn't offer the sacrifice themselves. It wasn't the fruit of their own hands. It was what God did. God would bring the sacrifice. So Cain offers to the Lord the fruit of the ground, the things of his own hands, his own works, while Abel, offers the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. Yes, this was his work, but that wasn't why it was offered. It was offered because it pointed forward to the need of a blood sacrifice to cover the sins of man. In fact, the death of a man who was sinless to cover the sins of man. But notice as well, this was the largest sacrifice in history, probably not by number, but by proportion. Only seven pairs of each of these animals got on the ark. One of each of those seven was sacrificed. That means one-seventh of every clean animal at this point was gone. Noah had just brought them through a year-long flood. And suddenly, now, they're dead. I think Matthew Henry best summarizes what's going on here. 
says, we must never think that wasted which God, in which God is honored. Serving God with our little is a way to make it more. Noah did not consider the seventh of each one of these pairs as his hard work burned up, but rather God's hard work returned to him in praise and thankfulness. Noah understood that these were not his. They were God's. And it was honoring to God to offer them up in praise. We might think of this very handy Sunday school story from the New Testament, the woman with the two mites. Jesus talking to his disciples about the difference between the Pharisees and true faith says he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. He saw a poor widow putting in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of them for they all out of their surplus put into the offering. But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. We might not think of Noah as impoverished after the flood. In fact, we don't need to think of him that way at all. But even out of his surplus, he still gives all that he has. It's about the proportion, the heart position behind the sacrifice. In fact, if he had sacrificed every single one of the animals, this wouldn't have been a better sacrifice. He sacrificed what God commanded. And this all does point forward to a different sacrifice. Even from the very beginning, from the curse, before Israel ever existed, there was a sacrificial system. And it all points forward to the final sacrifice for sin. In Revelation 5.9, we read, as Jesus takes the scroll, the title deed of the earth from the hand of God, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For the reason you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth forever. Even back in Noah's day, this was prefigured. This was planned by God. This was the provision that would purchase for Noah God's perseverance. It wasn't the animals that he sacrificed, but what it pointed to that would stall God's hand in judging man again. Hebrews 7.25 says he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. That salvation that Noah possessed was a salvation forever, not because he and his body lived forever or because these sacrifices lived forever. They have an end. They have a point of termination but because the ultimate sacrifice, the one who lives and lives today, he always lives to make intercession for Noah. And so from the very point which Noah offers these sacrifices, they are already working on his behalf as the prefigurement of Christ who pleads his case on his behalf. 
it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because he did once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice, and whenever we see through Scripture sacrifices being offered, it is not the action of this sacrifice, but the actions of Christ which atone. Christ paid the price for Noah's sins, just as he paid the price for our sins. And God knew this. This was in God's heart as Noah offered these clean animals. And so in Genesis 8.21, it says, The Lord smelled the soothing aroma. And the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. Now this soothing aroma is one of our last play on words that happens here in this passage. It's that final closing mark of rest. God's wrath is now at rest. This is his Nehoah. We saw that the, the dove did not have a place to rest her foot that the ark rested on the mountain, that Noah's very name means rest, rest in the sense of comfort. God's wrath here is rested on the basis of a blood sacrifice, one which draws man close to God. Draws man close to God, we will see, so that God can make a covenant with him. This is also going to be the first time in Scripture where we see covenant. You say, wait, pastor, didn't you teach us that there was a covenant in Eden and a covenant with Adam after the fall? Well, here for the first time, we have a new creation. We have a need for a covenant with an already sinful man. And that covenant would need to be brought on the basis of a blood sacrifice. You see this sacrifice and the covenant that comes after it are intimately intertwined. And it's the blood of the new covenant that ratifies that for us as well. Sinful man must approach God on the basis of a sacrifice. Noah understood this and God made a covenant with Noah. And here for the third time in our chunk of scriptures, Genesis 1 through 11, we see God reasoning among the Godhead. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma and the Lord said to himself. This should give us pause because every time this has happened so far, something incredible follows. Genesis 1:26, the Lord God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. The first time, he gave his very purpose for creation, that he would put a man over the throne of his creation. This began with Adam, but it points once again forward to his own son, Jesus Christ, who would take on human flesh and become the ultimate Adam. But also here, 
in Genesis 3.22, when man is exiled from Eden, the, the localized presence of God on earth. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So the last time God reasoned among himself was for the purpose of preserving mankind. He reasoned among the Godhead to create them for a purpose, to preserve them for a purpose, and so he does as well here. And he will once again reason to preserve mankind in Genesis 11, when they are becoming one corrupt people once again at Babel. And he reasons among himself. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do, and now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they will not understand one another's speech. God steps in to human history. He steps in to change the course of history. And here he's going to do that with his greatest covenant yet. One that is still in effect today. One that we are under. We are not under the Edenic covenant or the Adamic covenant. We are under this Noahic covenant so long as this earth remains. There are a few covenants at work in the church age. We have the new covenant, which we have a promissory token of in our salvation, and we will experience fully in the new heavens and new earth. But here, this is the covenant that guides the course of this earth. God is about to establish the course of history from that point until these heavens and these earths disappear. And so in 821, we get two coordinate promises from God as the preamble to his covenant with man. I will never again curse the ground on account of man. He has done this twice so far. At the curse, which changed the laws of nature so that the, thermal, the laws of thermodynamics were introduced and things began to dissolve. Entropy set in. Death begins. This was actually a far wider judgment than the flood. The flood is a bit more tangible for us, but the curse changed everything. And the flood was the second curse. And with it, God judged the whole earth. If we look into First and Second Peter, we see that not only the whole earth, but all of the universe was somehow affected by the flood. But he also says, I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. This is a statement then that he has destroyed every living thing and that now he won't do it again. We won't see something on the scale of the flood or the curse again. How is God going to do this? He is going to separate people groups. Both of these commands, and this is just a visual aid, both of these commands are set up in the same structure. Around one statement here, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. This doesn't seem to fit, does it? 
I won't curse again. I won't destroy again because man is so evil. We ask, wait, wasn't this his reason for destroying in the first place? The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. From man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. And what does he preserve then? Noah. Noah who found favor. The first instance of grace. He found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so that stalled God's hand towards Noah while the rest of the world was destroyed. So what is going on here then? That God is promising not to destroy this earth because man is in he's evil continually, even from the thoughts of his youth. God is saying, in essence, that despite man's vileness, I will not send a judgment like this again. It's exactly because man cannot deserve anything on his own besides judgment that his grace steps in and changes the course of history. And so he begins his covenant with man. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night, they shall not cease. There will be seasons, seasons which will produce fruit, vegetation for mankind to preserve him on the earth. We get cycles of cold and heat, summer and winter. We might say, aren't these the same thing? Probably not. One is probably an annual cycle and the other is a larger cycle. We get patterns of heating and cooling in this earth from the point of the flood on through the future. We go through various decades of global cooling. Everyone freaks out. Then we get global warming. Everyone freaks out. This has been going on since the flood. This is how nature is established. This is the course of this world because we don't keep an eye on history, probably because our generations are so short today. None of us were around for too many of these cycles to say, oh yeah, the earth does this. Actually, my grandma who's 94, she's not worried about global warming and it's not because she's 94 and won't be here for what they say, although they keep raising the date. I think I saw one protest the other day that said 1,000 days left. That's gonna be pretty easy to prove wrong. Eh, it might, but we'd be gone. We'll be gone first. My grandma's not worried about it because that's what she says. I've had cold summers. I've had warm summers. They come and go in cycles. Actually, she has the theory that they're seven-year cycles. I don't know if that's true. Woody says yes. <laughs> There's day and night. The sun's going to rise. The sun's going to set. God can step in like he does in the days of Joshua and stop this, but the cycle itself is going to continue. In other words, he is going to sustain this earth. He is going to sustain nature so long as his perseverance towards us remains. The earth isn't going to perish before we do. 
Because while the earth remains, none of these cycles will cease. That begs the question, though, will the earth remain? Is this a permanent forever covenant? No, actually. This covenant has a termination. And it terminates when judgment is complete and the earth itself is destroyed. So, though this is a promissory covenant, one that tells Noah that God will be persevering towards him, there is also hidden in the text of this, or in the language of this text, that the next judgment is the end. The next judgment is the very last one. This earth will not survive again, but we will be survived from it. 2 Peter 3.10 says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. This is the end of the Noahic covenant. It goes all the way through the millennial kingdom. It is a covenant that God puts in place with an eye towards the days when Christ himself will rule from Jerusalem over this earth. Seed time and harvest, hot and cold, winter and summer, day and night, those continue through the millennial kingdom. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness then? Peter likes to give us application for today. I guess I should be doing that too. Look for the hastening of the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. In other words, keep an eye on the future. Keep an eye on the promises of God. We can rest on those promises of old, see them completed, and say, yes, God will complete his promises towards us. His promise, for instance, from Hebrews 13, which I read a moment ago, that because he lives forever, he saves forever. The moment you believed in him for your salvation rather than the works of your own hands, you were saved forever. This is a never-ending covenant between you and him. This is the new covenant at work in you, ratified by the blood of one who lives forever. And so you will live forever, sharing in his life. The moment you believe, in fact, that new life, that eternal life begins. It doesn't wait until the day where you physically die and then suddenly your eternal life begins. That eternal life coming from Christ is already at work in you. It is already the life that we depend on. And it is our future hope as well. And so we have this hope to look forward to. And we see in the new Jerusalem, after this earth has perished, after the Noahic covenant is gone, there's still a covenant at work in us. There will no longer be any curse in that day. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will no longer be any night. They will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. This is our future hope. 
Noah's was pretty good, but I like ours better. Noah also had this future hope, but he didn't have this revelation. What a privilege we have to live in the church age. You know, this period in future history, future eternity, we call the eternal state, Revelation 21 and 22. This was not revealed in the age of law. This is not part of Israel's prophets. They only saw to the end of the millennial age. We get this privilege to get a glimpse into eternity. This is what happens when we get off the boat. This is our new heavens and new earth. I can't wait. We want to keep an eye on that future day, knowing that no matter how long this earth itself persists, we ourselves only have about a hundred years at best. And then we are translated into his kingdom where we will enjoy his presence over this earth for a thousand years. And then for the rest of eternity, when his throne merges with God's and they rule on one throne and we rule and reign with him. What an amazing hope we have for the future. And what an amazing confidence we have when we see the completed promises of God towards Noah. I think this is one of the greatest examples in all of the Old Testament for us to rest in faith. So our takeaway this morning, God has provided for our salvation, for our preservation, and for our hope and fellowship, and for our future reign together with him. He is at rest from judging this world, and his grace is sustaining all things. And there will come a point when his day of grace ends, just as it did in the day of Noah. But this earth remains. The sun and the moon and the stars are still in their course because God is gracious towards us. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you so much for your grace. We know that all the benefits we have as children of God come to us through grace. We have earned none of them. Your son has earned all of them on our behalf and he shares them with us as he shares his life with us. We thank you for your son who lives forever so that we might live with him. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.